It's great to be with you. It is, it is a delight. It really, truly is a delight to be part of this family. I feel the same way, Danny, that you feel. Um, we're in our Christmas series. We're going through Isaiah. I have titled this sermon, Hopefully, We'll Make It Through This Christmas. Hopefully, we'll make it through this Christmas. Some of you are coming this morning, and it is all like candy canes and reindeers and popcorn balls and happiness. Some of you are coming here this morning, and it's a little bit more of a, how are we going to put one foot in front of the other and traverse this season? Um, I'll share a little bit more about it. Uh, on the back end of the message, but I am definitely, and my family is definitely in the latter category right now. We are, we are in a much more difficult space as a family. And some of you are like, come on, James, I brought a friend today. Like, pump it up a little bit. Keep it. Well, as I, if you think about it, here's how I justify it in my mind. Every great Christmas movie that you've ever seen always has like that low point, doesn't it? Like that piece where it's just things are falling apart and everyone's sad. And so think of me as that part of your Christmas movie if you're doing really well. <laughs> but when I'm, when I'm thinking about hopefully we'll make it through this Christmas, hopefully, that term, one of the most or more misused terms in our English lexicon, hopefully, we use it to indicate, well, I hope this happens. With any luck, we'll make it through this Christmas. Hopefully, we'll make it through. It's actually, however, an adverb. It modifies a verb, hopefully. The best description or a good use of hopefully in a sentence is something like this. Hopefully, Fido sat by his dog food bowl. Full of hope. Hopefully, hopefully, full of hope, we will make it through this Christmas. That's the grammatically correct way to think about that. James, I brought a friend. Now you're talking about grammar? Yes. In this spot that we're in, how is it possible to hopefully walk through the dark forests, craggy cliffs, plummeting valleys of life. For me, when I'm in a hard place, I go to context. Context. In my strengths finder, anyone do strengths finder? Put your hands up if you're a strengths finder person. Okay. It's dwindling. It's dwindling in popularity, apparently. The Enneagram is the new dominant power. In Strength Finder, my number one is context. That is the number one thing for me. So I'm always asking the question, well, where is this coming from? And what's the institutional history, political history? What's the geography? What's the perspective? What's the 10,000-foot-up view of this thing that helps me understand and walk forward? If I'm ever in your house for the first time, after I'm done rummaging through your things, no, <laughs> I don't do that, you will see me not normally looking at all the pictures on the wall. Rather, I'm always looking through your windows. I'm looking to see what kind of a view you have. Can, what can you see from your house? What kind of a view? On an airplane, when we're coming in for landing and I'm in the aisle seat, 
I am that annoying person who's leaning over both neighboring seats and peering out the window because I want to see Los Angeles from a bird's eye view. Where's the Hollywood Bowl? Where's Paolo's Faraday's? Where's Long Beach? Where's Disneyland, right? I want to see the bigger picture. I need to. It's something inside of me. I love a good view. I love a big perspective. And in a hard place, in a difficult place, I want to understand where am I at in the, the acts of the play of my life? Like, where do I fit in the story? And I'm not alone. I might be an extreme case, but I'm not the only case. Indeed, we are a species as human beings. We are a species that is hopelessly fascinated by story. We all need to tell stories of everything that has happened and is happening. We are always implotting events in our lives and trying to make sense of them. The way we make sense of our world is to say, what story, where are we at in the story? Where have we been and where are we going? Okay, so that is where I go. And it just so happens that the passage that I'm preaching on have have been assigned for this Sunday is a passage that begs for context. It begs for us to lean over our neighbors on Spirit Airways or Delta and look out the window and say, okay, where are we at in relation to the larger picture? And so this morning, if you'll indulge me, a couple things are going to happen. At some point in this sermon, I'll be crying. Pastoral tears will be coming down my cheeks. If you catch one of those tears, by the way, you don't have to tithe for a month. That's actually a little known fact. No, I'll be crying. That will probably happen, right? As Danny said, and I could not agree more, I really truly feel like this is family. And some of you come from a family that may be more dysfunctional or painful. I want you to take those associations, throw them out, and witness, as you spend time with us, what hopefully a a family striving to look the way God intended tends us to look. So so I'll be crying a little bit, but also what I'm going to do for the first part of the sermon is I'm going to zoom all the way out. We're doing Google Earth, where we zoom out, zoom out, zoom out, zoom out, so you basically see the globe, and then we're going to slowly zoom back in and zoom back in until we rappel into our passage. That rappel line was for you, Bill. Just wanted to put a mountaineering reference in there. I'll do a C.S. Lewis quote at some point for you, Todd. I don't know where. (laughs) So let's begin. Let's go to the context before we get to Isaiah. Baral sheets. Bara Elohim. Etcha shamayim. Etcha eretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Oh, it's going to be a long sermon, friends. (laughs) No, don't worry. I will hopscotch through. As we began the sacred story, our God's eye view picture of who we are and what this thing that we are all participating in is, it starts off with a chapter one and two of God creating humans and the earth. And the headline of that particular chapter, chapters one and two, there are so many facts and things it does not care to talk about. It is just not interested in describing quantum physics and helping us understand how the cell works, how black holes work. None of this is a preoccupation, but there is something that is really, really, really at the tip of the brain in Genesis 1 and 2, and it is this. God created human beings 
this earth. And there was originally a harmony, a beautiful dance of love where humans and humans and humans and God and humans and this earth. This story is told beautifully draped in ancient Near Eastern cosmological imagery. But the story is emphasizing things were, to use another Hebrew term, tov. Things were good, tov. Indeed, things were tov ma'ov. Very good. So what unmistakably is communicated in Genesis 1 and 2 is God created, and oh my goodness, it was good. It was delightful. It was delicious. It was right. All those things, those parts where your heart swells in the Christmas movie and the tears start coming down of joy, this is the imagery of Genesis 1 and 2. But then it races, Scripture races to one of the primary questions that philosophers and religious groups and any human being, be they professionals or armchair philosophers, have considered and thought about. And that is this. What went wrong? What is the problem or what is missing from my experience of reality? We all kind of know there's a problem. And in human history and across the globe today, there's all sorts of debate about exactly what is capital T-H-E, all caps, capital P-R, something else. I don't spell well. What is the problem? And it races to that. And in Genesis chapter 3, it indicates that there indeed was a rupture between this harmony of humans and God and humans and the earth and God and us. This rupture wherein human beings balled up their fists and said, no, God, will do it our way. Thank you very much. And from this sort of human-initiated breakage, outflows injustice, outflows death, outflows disease, outflows disorder, outflows chaos, outflows pain. And those problems which we could not possibly number like sands of a seashore. From this comes the grossness. And then the Bible wastes almost no time in a short nine chapters to the fact that this God did not leave behind the train wreck, but rather insists on pursuing making all things right. Insists on speaking to death and saying, death, you are an aberration, you are a problem, and death, thou shalt die. Insists on taking balled-up fists, clutching swords, and replacing them with hugs and love and harmony. This is the story that begins in the way God does it, the way God decides to begin what some have called redemptive history. And redemption, that is a term we use or used to use when it comes to cashing in cans. What's the redemption value? But it's actually a term that is rooted in slavery. Redeeming, buying someone out of slavery, out of the shackles, the self-imposed shackles in our case. How God decides to enter into human history and undo the wrong. And it starts with a dude and his family. This dude's name is Exalted Father, Avram. He's an exalted father who's 75 years old and has zero children. Ironic name. And the Lord calls to him, Genesis chapter 12, a very important passage. You can read along or you can listen along, but I'm going. 
The Lord has said to Avram, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great people. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And here is the horizon of the promise. And all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Somehow, through the line of this exalted father, Avram, later he's called Avrahim, father of many, still has one, one kid. From him, all will be made right again. That promise sort of, it's planted in Genesis 12, and it has a very strange history. The directions and twists and turns of that promise. Abraham was called out of a place called Ur in Mesopotamia. Before you fall asleep, let me bring this home. Um, I want to show you a map. I want to show you why it's significant. I was going to put together a nice PowerPoint presentation, and I was going to make a big map using cardboard and markers, but my kids were gone last night and couldn't help me with the coloring. So I went a different direction. Instead, I decided to use a map that you've already been provided, all of you. So if you would, if you're able, and if not, look at your neighbors. Pull out your right hand right here. This is your map, okay? This is your map. Pull it on out if you're too cool for it. It's all right. No one's too cool for this. Um, Okay, so look at your hand. Look down at it, your right hand should form a little L, and pretend like you have a little, another thumb growing out exactly symmetrically with the thumb you have now. So you have an extra thumb, okay? Now imagine, imagine that. The tip of your imaginary thumb, that would be Mesopotamia. That's the heart of where Abraham lived. That's the heart of the spot where he was taken out of. Now, if you move to the little dangly skin part, What do we even call that? The webbing? We need to name that. Let's work on that uh, as one of our goals for 2020 at at the River Church. Name that piece. This piece right here, that's Israel. That whole piece is Israel. Okay? Your real thumb, this is Egypt. Now you have a sort of an idea in terms of topography. Um, The midpoint of your palm, or the middle of it, for me it looks like like a rainforest of just human hair growing out. Lots of hair. We've got a lot of hair here. Some of you do not. That is all desert. It's arid, dead, nothing lives there desert. Medieval Bedouin merchants using camels could eventually cross that, but no one's getting across there. Indeed, if you want to get from your Mesopotamia, that is the tip of your ghost thumb, If you want to get from the tip of Mesopotamia to Israel or to Egypt, let's say, you have to travel from the tip of your ghost thumb across your first set of knuckles over into Egypt. So with that now, I can safely say, you know ancient Near Eastern geography like the back of your hand. You see what I did there? Do you see the, yep, that's right. That's right, people. That's the caliber of homiletics you get here at the River Church. So, why is that important? It's important because Israel, that little interesting piece of skin that's sitting between your thumb and your ghost thumb, it is a 
small underdog space that is seated between two ancient Near Eastern world empires, two seats of empire. Egypt from the fourth millennium BC, emerging some of the greatest, most significant, most intimidating powerhouses of antiquity, and Mesopotamia, the cradle of civilization, truly the cradle of civilization, that moves from Sumerian city-states, where Abraham was called out of, called out of the space of power, out of the space of comfort, out of the space of predictability, into this weird on-ramp, kind of no-man's land that was the land of Canaan. That space he was called out of, Mesopotamia, housed Sumerian city-states, Akkadian empires, Old Babylonian empires, Hittite empires, Assyrian empires, Persian empires. It was the place of power, unshakable. And here he is called as God's agent of fixing the problem into this small space. And indeed, as we will see if you read through the story, Israel is constantly in relationship with these two other sorts of seats of power whether Egypt or Mesopotamia. Indeed, Israel itself is just a buffer zone between these two competitive powers. So anytime you want to attack Egypt from Mesopotamia, you can't cross the Arabian Desert, you'll die. You can't just cross. You have to move up through the Fertile Crescent, those knuckles, on down through Israel on your way to Egypt, or vice versa. And so where does that place, oh, little Israel? Insignificant, small, and constantly vulnerable. And God calls Abraham exactly there. Only three generations later, only three generations later, Abraham's descendants, these people of promise, these people to fix the human predicament, are suddenly, for 400 years, enslaved in Egypt. They are planted in the heart of another empire and they are property to be owned, to be beaten, to be taken. For four, We've been around as a republic here in the U.S. almost 250 years. Can you imagine 400 years? What did great-great-grandpa do? What did great-great-great-great-great-grandma do? Well, you could do Ancestry.com, but I have an idea it was a slave. It was a slave's profession. Most, yes, that's exactly, that's all that they were. After 400 years, what is your identity? And God does something to this underdog slave people. He pulls them out miraculously. You've seen the Prince of Egypt, you know the story, or you've read the Bible, I don't know. He pulls them out of Egypt, and when he finally reintroduces himself, in a formal way to them and says, you are my people and here's how we're going to operate. Y'all know this very, many of you know this, the Ten Commandments, except for oftentimes Genesis chapter 20, we miss that first piece of the Ten Commandments, probably the most important piece, where God identifies who he is, who his people are. And he says this, Genesis 20 one and two, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God is a God who chooses slaves as his people. He is a God that surveys 
the diversity, the cornucopia of people groups and power options and good-looking, attractive, good-smelling, full-of-potential peoples. And he says, I want that one. The one that's buried. The one that's enshackled. The one that's dirty. Dirt under the finger. The one whose heart is full of mourning. The one that is a, a hair's breadth away from forgetting who the heck they are in the first place. I want that people. And I'm going to call them my people. And I'm going to remind them I am, I am God. Even at its height, as Israel is moved back into the land, at its height, at its most powerful under the monarchy, 10th century B.C., under David and Solomon, it was powerful, but it's sort of like, compared to the world empires, it's sort of like New Zealand at its height. How many, anyone here from New Zealand? Good, I could talk about them. Like, if you think about New Zealand at its height of power... Okay. I mean, I think in New Zealand, I think of like Lord of the Rings, Flight of the Concords, and Sheep. At its peak of power, cool. But it's nothing compared to, right, the U.S. at its peak of power, or China, or Russia, or you name it, these world empires. This is Israel. At its peak, under Solomon, and all of its glory, that's cute. Cute little Israel, wow. Look at all the horsies. Even its internal politics seem to be designed to keep Israel in a place of reliance and dependence and, dare I say, weakness. When God finally chooses a king in 1 Samuel chapter 16, when God finally chooses a king for Israel and says, fine, you want a king like all the other ancient Near Eastern kingdoms have a king, I'll let you have one. I'm going to choose him. And he sends Samuel, a prophet, to speak to Israel and to go anoint, symbolically dump oil on the head, to say, this is my king. And he goes to the house of Jesse. And it says this. I'll read it. You can just follow along. First Samuel chapter 16. Fill your horn with oil. Be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be a king. One of the sons of Jesse. Skip down to verse 6 when Samuel arrives at Jesse's house. Samuel's like, who's Jesse again? Okay, I'll go, God. You know what you're doing. He shows up. It says, when he arrives, Samuel saw Elab. That's a good name, by the way. Good name for a betta fish. Elab. Eat your dinner, Elab. Be still, Elab. He arrives, Samuel saw Elab, one of Jesse's sons. Like, okay, God, I know, who, I know who's going to be the crown prince here. I know who the king's going to be. Look at Elab. Look at those pectoralises, those abs. For some reason, Elab doesn't have a shirt on in my vision of it. Look at Elab. This dude is smart, Ivy League educated, powerful. He's got all the acumen, all the strategic thinking we could ever dream of. This is the thing we needed to take us to the next level, level of world empires. God, you're smart. And God goes, nope, not him. He tells him specifically. He goes, Dave, Samuel goes, surely this is the Lord's anointed right here. I mean, Elab. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't even consider his appearance or his height. I rejected him. The Lord, that is God, that is the creator, that is the one with the eye view, 
of ultimate truth does not even look at the things people look at. People, they love to look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so Samuel goes through one, two, three, four, five, six, seven of Jesse's kids. And finally he's like, okay, I picked a heck of a day to quit smoking. Like, where is the guy? I don't think he smoked, by the way. Tobacco is a new world product brought in in the 1500s. He says, where is the guy? I don't see him. We've gone through seven. And they go, well, there's one more kid. His name is David. And he's out cleaning up sheep poop right now. Like he's good with the pooper scooper. That's David. And he's like, all right, bring him here. And he brings David. And, and God says, this is the one. He's got a heart. I see through all this other stuff. And I see that heart. I don't care if he smells like sheep poop. He's the one I want. This is my guy. And so it's like God is all along the way saying, Abraham, move out of power. Move into impotence. Rely on me. Israel in slavery. I want that to be my people. And calls them out. And at their peak of power, choosing a king that is the least likely from a pretty insignificant family line of Jesse. At the point of our text focus, Israel is exactly where they always seem to be. Beleaguered, weak, seemingly at the whim, behest, fancy of whatever ancient Near Eastern imperial giant is bearing down on them. In this case, it's Assyria. Todd covered that beautifully last week. And God speaks. God says something. He reminds us of something. So now we have like serious context for sort of how God tends to work in at least redemptive history, if not our history. And he says something. And our passage is Isaiah 11, but I want to roll it back to Isaiah 10 where he actually, the first words he enunciates are to world power, or to Assyria. He says this, Woe to those who have made unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees. What if this was the voice of God? Like I say this to those of you that are hanging out today, and maybe you're in that place of doubt, and I get there sometimes too. We're like, is this really God's, God's word? Is this really God speaking? Just for a second, what if this was truly the voice of God giving us a perspective on how he sees people? Woe to those who issue oppressive decrees to deprive the poor of their rights, to withhold justice from oppressed and my people, to make widows their prey, and to rob the fatherless. What will you do on the day of reckoning? What are you going to do when I step down and I look you in the eyes in all of your opulence and all of your power and all of your military array and I say, how dare you? Ignore the fatherless. How dare you hurt the most vulnerable of the society? Whoa, oh my goodness. It's a powerful, powerful thought. And he goes on. He talks to the king of Assyria in this prophecy. In verse 13, he says, For he says, by the strength of my hand, I've done this. By my wisdom, I'm going to do this. I've removed the boundaries of nations. I have plundered their treasures. Like a mighty one, I've subdued their kings. And then it continues on. Skip to 33. It moves into 
a forestry metaphor. It moves into a forestry metaphor. And it describes, imagine if you've ever been to Grant's Grove in the Sequoias. Have, how many of you have been there? Let me take a look and see. Okay, you got to go. It's pretty amazing. Drop your kids off at Hume Lake or pick them up and go to Grant's Grove. It's amazing. But you walk in and you see these sequoias, thousand-year-old trees, these giant trees that have seen kingdoms rise and fall. They've seen forest fires and earthquakes, and there they stand. And if I said, hey, try to knock one of those down, do your best, push it down. You're like, there is no way. These things are huge. This is the illustration that Isaiah uses. Instead of sequoias, these sequoias are world empires. And it says, the Lord Almighty, verse 33, will lop off the boughs of their, with great power. The lofty trees will be felled. The tall ones will be brought low. He will cut down the forest thickets with an axe. Lebanon, that's the place where most big fat trees were in Israel, in the east. Lebanon will fall before the mighty one. In other words, God has other plans. And then look what happens. Now move to 11. And a little shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Imagine walking into that grove. That majestic, powerful, intimidating, scary grove that is now felled. Stumps that you couldn't even imagine. And you look over and there's this little sapling. This little green, little leaf shooting up. If you blow on it, you're going to destroy it. It's so weak. It's so small. And God's like, from the, the shoot will come up from Jesse. From its roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. I don't want your sequoia. I want that little sapling. A spirit of understanding. A spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his own eyes or decide by what he hears with his own ears. In other words, reliance will be the defining characteristic of this leader. But with rightness, with righteousness, he will judge who? The needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, not assembling armies, but with with his mouth, with the breath of his lips. Righteousness will be his belt, faithfulness the sash around his waist, and this gorgeous imagery of shalom. If you want to know what that Genesis 1 and 2 shalom image, here's some great pictures. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion, and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. A little child will lead them all. It's a picture of the coming of God's empire. The coming of what Jesus often referred to as the kingdom of God. And in this kingdom, swords become plowshares. But what I want you to see all along the way is that God again and again declares my biggest act, my unparalleled intervention in human history will come from this little to be, not to be taken seriously, sapling from the lineage of David. And we know the beautiful story. A couple, not even married, from a town called Nazareth that is a nowhere, nothing town. It makes Bakersfield look like a metropolis. Love you, Bakersfield. Nazareth. This little girl 
barely of age, with child, without husband, without money, without seemingly protection, carrying in her womb the hope of all people. And it's like, it's God. It's so darn God to do that. It's just the way he rolls. If context tells us anything, it's the way he rolls. I started this sermon by mentioning and by putting it out there that I am, I'm preaching from a place of a broken heart. Our family, our hearts are broken. Many of you know the journey we've been on as foster parents, and, and so many of you know and love Calvin, little Calvin, our, our, our three-year-old, who we've had for 14 months, and who was placed with us early on, and, and we were praying whether we, we, we say yes or no, because our family was already kind of like going through a lot of growing, and it looked like he needed a place. He had been through two homes before us, not even two years old yet. And we said, yeah, let's do it. And they said, it's probably going to adoption. It's, it's just, just t- we'd love you to take him. And we prayed about it, and we talked to many of you, and we went for it. And he came into our home and came into our hearts. The state sometimes uses the phrase caretaker. That's their new vocabulary as of the last couple years, and it's not right. He was my son, my little baby boy. Lori taught him to swim. I taught him pray and I potty trained him. Should have an award for that. <laughs> 14 months of our lives and our hearts in Michelli and Brixton, little Zion. On the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, he was picked up for his normal visit. He has normal th- two, three hour visits with his bio mom once a week. And I picked him up, and I said, I love you. I love you, Calvin. Daddy loves you. And he goes, I know. And I say, Jesus loves you. He goes, I know. And his little cheek was against my cheek. Just, you know those cheeks. You've seen them. You just want to hold them. And I hugged him, and he hugged me so tightly. And I said, tonight we're celebrating your birthday. He's turning three. And your birthday cake's ordered, and, and it's going to come. And we're going to have birthday cake, buddy. And he went off, and Bray kissed him and hugged him. We went off. She said, I'm going to tuck you in tonight. An hour into his visit, we get a call from DCFS, and they say he's not coming home. He's actually going to stay with his bio mom until court on Monday. And so we shipped with the DCFS. We sent the cake with them. And Monday court happened, and they permanently placed him back with his mom. We didn't get to say goodbye. He had no idea. And I'm in court, and I've never felt more impotent. I've never felt more powerless in my life. As a father, I want to protect him. I want to hold him. I want to say something. I want to stand up and say, listen, you people, I know you're trying your best, but you have a thousand cases. He's our one case. Please, hear. And it went so quickly and mechanically, and we were out. The judge, and he was a good man, I'm sure, and he said, I can't imagine what the foster parents, or he didn't say, the caretakers are going through. Okay, what's our next case? And I'm walking in the hallway of Children's Edelman's Court in Los Angeles, and I'm, wa- I'm stumbling around, like in a, in a 
really terrible drunken stupor of, of, and I'm just trying to talk to anybody. I'm so powerless. And I chased down a lawyer that was in there. I go, can I please talk to you for a minute? We didn't get to say goodbye. We didn't get to say goodbye. And you get one of those, sir, sir, sir. You know, you're like, don't do that. Please. And we're driving home and I'm so mad. I'm so angry. I'm just so upset that this could happen in the richest city in the nation, one of the richest cities. I'm so brokenhearted, my daughter on the floor crying the whole night, convulsing in pain. And I'm like, God, I can't do anything. There's nothing I can do. I told you I was going to cry. And slowly and subtly and quietly and surely, God whispers, in my heart and says, I want you to look up. I need you to look again at your story. I need you to look at the story again. I need you to go back to it. And it's a beautiful story. It's a story of when we are underdogs, when we are hopeless, we are hopeful. When I have no power or voice, the plan has not gone off the rails. So I guess I'm preaching here this morning and I debated whether I should or shouldn't and I just kind of thought like there's no way that I'm going to stand. I'm, there's no way I'm not preaching. This is an amazing family. Those of you who's your first time, every week isn't like this, I promise. But I want to end with a song. And it's a song many of you know I'm not going to sing. Don't worry. It comes from Luke chapter 1 and I want you to listen to this psalm the song, and I want you to notice if you, I want you to see if you notice any themes from this scared young lady with child. And Mary said, Luke 1, 46, and Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. This isn't talking about, by the way, a a Victorian ethic of humility. This is talking about the brokenness. God looked and saw the brokenness of her. From now on, she goes on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one. I'm not talking about an emperor. I'm not talking about a king or a statesman. I'm talking about the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name, his mercy. It just extends to all of those who fear him. It spills out, and listen to this, from generation to generation. We're talking long game here. We're talking multi-generational. He's performed mighty deeds with his arm. He's scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, and he's lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He's helped his servant Israel remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. She places herself in that story. In my story, as I close now, it looks bad. It looks bleak. It looks frustrating. It makes me want to marshal all of the power that I have to bring about a tidal wave of dissent to hold to account. And maybe there's a place for that in some, some, in some time. But right before me, 
I see myself in that parade of ancestors in the faith. And Bray and I stand in a spot. And it's, there's actually a pl- part of that that's beautiful. To stand in a spot and know that we are singing the same refrain that our ancestors in the faith have sing, sung. Which is, our hearts are broken, God, but our hearts are hopeful, God. Our hearts are broken, God, but our hearts are hopeful, God. For little Calvin, his story is not shut. I believe with all my heart he's going to do amazing things. I believe it. Something powerful. Because those are the kind of people God wants to do mighty things through. The pain is not over in your life. I know for a fact in this room that so many of you are carrying burdens and are in places of impotence. You can't fix the problem. There's nothing you can do. You can't deploy all of your resources and network to solve it. And there you are feeling impotent and feeling weak and feeling powerless. And I want to say, welcome to the spot where God's blessing longs to dump out. Welcome to that long trail that our ancestors have walked before us. We will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. God is not ended all suffering in this moment. But the cross has put an expiration date on it. And we're going to be going now, like we do every week, to one of our only kind of rituals we do, where we take a piece of bread that is just a piece of bread, and we say, this reminds us of the body of God with us, crushed on a Roman cross as a slave, naked, for our sin, for our brokenness, to fix these wrongs and the grape juice representing his blood. And I want to, uh, I'm going to pray. I'm going to say thank you for listening. Thank you for letting Bray and I and our family share our hearts and lives with you. I, I, the day I have to stop doing that is the day I need to, like we need to shut up, shut up our church and do something else with our time. You know what I mean? This is why we're here together. When you're in pain, I just want to say it as a person in pain, Leaving church getting to church, being around people has got to be the most comforting thing, and that maybe is the marker of how we're doing in our health as a church. So thank you. I'm rambling, Lord, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you know our pain, you've been in our pain. You're with Calvin in his little heart's pain. You're with my family and their little heart's pain. You're with my wife and I in our pain. You're with this church in their respective areas of pain. And we live, hopefully, making it through this Christmas. Full of hope. You're not done. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Oh, God, they shine.